This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. This week's guests are Colin Green and Sierra Jaspin, who lead the engineering productivity research team at Google. Both Colin and Sierra are accomplished researchers, so our discussion centers around several papers they've written, as well as their work inside Google. We start with what their productivity research team does and how Google as a whole approaches measuring developer productivity. We then talk about Google's quarterly engineering survey, from where it began to how it's going today. The latter half of this episode focuses on general principles around measuring productivity and Google's recent efforts to better define and measure technical debt. Whether you're a longtime listener of this show or just tuning in, this is a must-listen episode that takes you behind the scenes of how Google is tackling developer productivity. You'll hear from some of the most highly accomplished people in this field, so I hope you enjoy listening. Colin, Sierra, so excited to finally have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. So Google's obviously such a unique company, and the level of depth of the work you guys are doing, I think, is really remarkable. So I want to start with asking you both to just share a little bit about your team. You know, what type of work do you do? Who is on your team? Share a little bit with listeners. Yeah, our team is um, the Engineering Productivity Research Team. And we were started as a way of trying to understand what we can do to really improve developers' productivity. Previous to our team's creation, a lot of decisions about what types of tools we needed at Google were made just based upon an engineer at the company taking a good guess based on what would help them. And we got really far at Google with that, but that only takes you so far. At some point, the company's really big. People are doing different types of development, and the people building the tools may not know about all the different types of work that are being done. So we wanted to create a team that would better understand the on-the-ground developer experience so that we could figure out how to improve the tooling, the processes, everything that people do. We created the team with the idea of it being a mixed methods research team. And so from the start, it was not just a team of software engineers. We also got UX researchers involved right away. And we continue to grow as a mixed team. We try to grab, grab people from a variety of fields, especially our UX researchers to come from a pretty wide variety of fields there. It's a really unique team in some ways. I think people are always surprised to find out that we have like eight software engineers and then we have eight or nine uh, UX researchers. And as Sierra said, the backgrounds, especially among the researchers, are, are quite diverse. So we've had behavioral economists. I'm a psychologist. We have social psychologists, industrial organizational psychologists. We have somebody from public health. We have people from engineering and public policy, like across the board, trained as researchers in some sort of social or behavioral science methods, but really diverse. And I think that that really strengthens what Sierra was saying. We really lean into using a wide variety of methods mostly in concert, not in isolation, but together so that we get a complete picture of what the developer experience is like. So, you know, we do diary studies, we do survey research, we do interviews, we do qualitative analysis, we do logs analysis, we do a really like wide range of things to understand exactly what's happening as best we can and, and as holistically as we can. Yeah, the goal is always to try to figure out how to triangulate on developer productivity. We know there's not a single metric for developer productivity. So we try to use all these different research methods to see, are they all aligned? Are they all telling us the same underlying story of what's happening? Or are they misaligned, in which case we need to dig deeper to figure out what's going on? 
we'll talk a lot more about the different methods and ways and what does mixed methods even mean. But I want to also like, so how does your team actually interface with the rest of the organization? I mean, who are you actually working with? What other teams are you partnered with? What does the, the daily work sort of look like? That's evolved over time. So one of our big sort of customers is the, the first party developer team, and they build all of our internal and homegrown tools. And when they want to, for example, understand what makes developers productive and what could make them more productive, our data, our research is one of the places they go to sort of understand how to even measure that. You know, that's an evolving relationship. And we're, we're focused on trying to improve how well our foundational research can be applied to these sort of very product-specific or tool-specific questions. But that's the goal is to make these tool infrastructure and, and process and practice improvements and to just help them understand the impact that their work is having. We also consult with a, a variety of other folks at Google. So we work with people operations to some extent. We work with some of the folks in real estate and, and workspaces. We work with some of the people in corporate engineering who do sort of like the tools for all Googlers, not just the engineers. It's a pretty wide smattering of folks. So when you focus on engineering productivity, you're focusing on a big chunk of the Google population. And so like there's wide interest in, in what we find. Colin and Sarah, you, you've both already touched on this, but you know, I want to kind of double click on it. You come from different professional backgrounds. Right? Sierra, I understand you have a software engineering background. Colin, you have a psychology background. I think it's probably very clear to you how those things kind of come together, blend together to apply to the work you're doing. But can you share your own experience, like your own perspective on this for listeners who, who may not understand, like, first of all, why the, the pairing is so powerful, but also why you even need a psychologist? Well, I guess I can go for that one first, since I was the one who started hiring psychologists on the team. Having the UX researchers on the team and having people with a psychology and social, it's really a social sciences background, is important to provide us with context. I have a little bit of experience with doing user studies from my PhD work, but that wasn't the primary goal of any of my PhD work. I wasn't software engineering. I was doing static analysis. A user study was something we'd like do at the end, make sure it kind of users were happy with your tool, but it wasn't the primary focus. And what we knew was that if we were doing logs analysis, that only provides you with part of the picture. It tells you what developers are doing, but it doesn't tell you why they're doing that. It doesn't tell you how they feel about it, if what they're doing is good or bad. It doesn't tell you if there's room for improvement. It only gives you a number, but you can't interpret that number unless you have more of the qualitative side of the world and you understand the behaviors and how those behaviors change over time, depending upon how you change the context. So that's why we started pulling in. Our, we had started with one UX researcher on the team, and it worked really, really well to have somebody who's thinking about like, wait, how do we design the survey to get the question that we want answered? Because we, quite frankly, weren't very great designing surveys to, at the start. So it was working out really well to have that. The other powerful thing, though, is that having the engineers with UX researchers also meant we could start scaling UX research. I remember the one of the first times we did that where a UX researcher on team was running to run a survey and she was planning on doing it like as a daily survey or an end of week survey for people. And she goes, oh, I really just wish, though, that I could send the survey right when the developer is running a build, because that's what I really want to know is what they're thinking about when they're running their, that build. And we go, well, we can make that happen for you. We can plug into the build system and find out right when they're running the build, we can send them a ping on chat and ask them to take the survey right then. And that unlocked a whole new set of methods for us that we could do that. And so that's what we call experience sampling. It's a 
common technique, but it's not always available for UX researchers because they don't have the software engineers to be able to scale them like that. Yeah, I would say like the combination of the behavioral research methods that we bring from the UXR side and the, the capability to scale that the engineers provide us. Also, the support for quantitative analysis. Half of our researchers are actually quantitative researchers. So it's not like everybody on the UXR side is sitting over there doing interviews and then talking about emotions. Like we have people who do quantitative analysis and statistical modeling and, and even ML on the research side. You can't paint uh, all of the researchers with a single brush. But um, the engineers offer us this really deep subject matter expertise. Like we're in a really fortunate position. The UXRs on our team, if we were UX researchers on a consumer facing product, it'd be like, those out there are the users and we, we maybe met them sometimes and we try to understand what they mean. We are sitting next to our users. Like Sierra is a software engineer at Google. I study people like her. So the direct contact with your user base, as well as the domain expertise, because I'm not a software engineer. Like I knew almost nothing about software development when I joined this team, but the direct access to subject matter experts who are way deep in it and who are you know at the top of their field is a really powerful augmentation to having this sort of quiver of arrows that is like behavioral research methods. So I think those things like the domain expertise, the scalability, and the technical skills from the engineering side combined with the wide variety of behavioral research methods and a facility with like accounting for things like bias and like the way people work and what to watch out for in survey responses or interviews, like demand characteristics, all the stuff that plagues and makes psychology research hard. It turns out whenever you're talking to humans, like those things are a factor and you need to account for them. So like we run surveys, we run surveys that we think aren't terrible, but it's super easy to run a terrible survey. And then once you've run a survey, non-response bias analysis is a thing, right? So like that's stuff that comes from the social sciences and we're able to bring that expertise. I got a good example of the uh, domain expertise coming into play. One of our first quant UX researchers was doing some data analysis early on in the team. And she did a great job with the analysis and she showed us her early results. And immediately all the engineers said, that's wrong. At first she thought that like we were criticizing her work. We're like, no, 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 your, your analysis is great, but there's something wrong with the data. And she's well, how would you know? We're like, well, you're studying memory and the results that you've got, nothing's in a power of two. Something's wrong. This is supposed to be about machine memory. There's something wrong with the underlying data here. And we went back and found out, yes, there was actually like the upstream data source we're getting data from had a bug. There was some weird stuff coming in. We had to fill. So she knew then to filter all that out and it completely changed her results. So having that initial sniff test of like, this doesn't look right from the domain expert's perspective can be real helpful. There's one other thing that I think is, is pertinent here, because I think sometimes we talk to other teams about how can I build this capability? And they mean like, how can I build that mixed methods capability? A thing that we, we benefit from for our research having professional engineers on the team is the data engineering stuff. So at Google, we have instrumentation and logs that a lot of folks won't have, but that doesn't mean it's easy to work with those things. So, you know, and even if you have a very good data science team, all that data engineering, like cleaning the data, interpreting it, understanding where it has weird anomalies, when it's wrong, that requires data engineering skills that not everybody has. And even if they do, data scientists might not want to lean into that part of their job. Right. They might want to like, I want to do the analysis and the research. I don't want to like munge through the data and figure out like which rows to throw away. That's a necessary prerequisite in many cases, but it's not the fun part. So we have software engineers who do a lot of the building, curation, maintenance, and monitoring of our data sources and do it more efficiently than we than we could do as researchers. And so when it comes time to do the quantitative research, they can focus on like the meat of the problem, right? And it's I have to say, like relative to other contexts, it's been easy to hire quantitative researchers to our team 
because we can just say like, look at this playground of like well, well-formed data that you get to work with. Like there's so much and it's curated and you have engineers to help you with data engineering problems. You get to do the research and the fun part and have really like a lot of muscle around the hard data engineering part that isn't necessarily like the fun part for, for a researcher. Well, the background of your team and all the resources you, you have put toward this problem, I think are inspiring and enviable for probably a lot of listeners, but I think also just speak to just like how hard of a problem this is, right? And that's what we're really here to talk about today. I want to move into, you know, we've talked about some of the methodology, some of the backgrounds of folks working on these problems at Google. You've written several papers uh, that are public about you know, different ways in which Google is actually trying to measure productivity or aspects of productivity. Can you first start by explaining just at a high level what you mean when you talk about a mixed methods approach to developer productivity? How does Google measure developer productivity? So we, when we're measuring developer productivity, we have a general philosophy first. that There is no single metric that's going to get you developer productivity. You have to triangulate on this. And we actually do that through multiple axes. The first one that we try to work across is speed, ease, and quality. So these are three separate aspects of productivity that are kind of in tension with each other. And some of them are more obvious than others. I actually like a quote that Colin gave at one point where he told somebody that he can improve developers' productivity at Google by removing code review, developer velocity by removing code review. And it's a nice one at Google, at least because every Googler will say, absolutely not. You're not taking away my code review. We need that. That's a basic quality check there. So it makes the point well. So we're going over those three aspects. And even within those three, we further measure across different methods. So we will measure using logs for speed. We will also measure people's beliefs of how fast they think they are going. We will also follow this up with diary studies and interviews to make sure that this all lines up and matches up together. So for every single one of these, not even like there's like one speed metric, we have multiple speed metrics. And so when we're talking about mixed methods. It is both using multiple measures, but also making sure that they're validated against each other. So as an example with our logs data, um, this is in our paper about cross-tool logging, we have a measure which is active coding time. And we don't just create that measure in our logs, we also do diary studies and we ask engineers to write down every few minutes during the day what they are doing. And we make sure then that what they said they do is matching up with our logs. And that helps us give some confidence that our logs data is actually accurate. I think there's a bit here that that really like epitomizes our mixed methods approach. So not only are we using our logs data and our behavioral data in concert, but when we do those diary studies that Sierra is describing, we actually don't treat either data source as the ground truth. I think that would be a reflexive action is like, oh, I've got these logs data. Do they predict? How well do they match the, the sort of subjective report data? That's not exactly what we do. We actually use the approach that psychologists have to integrate a reliability. So if you have like a bunch of observers all trying to say like, count instances of sharing in a kindergarten class, there's no objective ground truth. You just have a bunch of observations. And so what you calculate is the agreement among those people. And you just treat them all sort of as equally weighted in that analysis. That's actually what we do with our diary studies and our logs metrics. We say, we have an active coding time metric defined on logs data. And then we have these diaries from developers that tell us when they were actively coding. We just calculate the agreement between those two sources. We assume there is some truth out there that we can't directly observe without like sitting next to the developer and probably bothering them. 
And so we take these two sources and we say, are these two lenses telling us about the same world? Because that's really what we want to know. We just want to know that they're telling us the same information. And in the end, like often what we do is we lean into the log space metrics because they scale well. We can collect active coding time for every engineer all the time, and they're passively collected. So we don't have to bother anybody. The diary studies require an engineer's time, attention, and effort. And we can only do it for a small number of engineers at a time. I think we've done a study as large as 50 at a time, which is actually big for a diary study. But once we've sort of like found good evidence that we're getting the same information from the two sources, then we can like lean into the scalable method a little bit. But that sort of elevation of a lot of engineering organizations would say the subjective data is like, that's the soft data. And now I've got the hard data. We really don't do that. We elevate that behavioral data and we say like, this is just another view of what's happening in your organization. Let's treat it that way. Let's see whether we're, we're learning about the same stuff from these sources. And then other considerations like scalability and the investment required by the participant, that's what determines how we decide to collect sort of like long-term data. The other thing I'll, I'll say is that uh, we often use some of our behavioral methods where it's either we don't know how to do logs-based metrics or we can't in principle. So. We talked about uh, the fact that we run a survey. We run a quarterly engineering satisfaction survey. And when we first started that survey, there was a lot of like selling to execs, like, hey, look, it's not, this isn't just people's opinions. This is actually like valuable data about how engineering productivity is working. I think at this point, we've, we've gotten past that obstacle, like people have bought into it. But one of the things that really helps make that point is that there are things that are very difficult to extract from logs. Technical data is a thing that we've run into that it's just hard to find good objective metrics that tell you how much and where and whether it's a problem the technical data is. Surveys can help you measure things that you don't know how to measure objectively. And it can also help you measure things that are in principle not measurable objectively. So like engineers satisfaction, there are no logs-based metrics that will tell us that directly, but we can ask engineers and they're a good proxy, right? So I think that's two uses for uh, behavioral methods in addition to triangulating is just augmenting what we can do objectively with we can measure flow or satisfaction now. Maybe eventually we can measure them in some other way later, but we can get them now and, and track them longitudinally. You've shared now quite a bit about how you use you know, surveys and log-based metrics and data in combination and how you use both to kind of you know, cross-validate the other. Can you share, you know, have you run into discrepancies between the two piece, uh, types of data? And what have you learned from these instances where the data isn't lining up? Yeah, we've had a couple cases where there's been discrepancies. They've tended to fall into two categories. One is that the logs data was wrong. <laughs> happens rather regularly when there's a discrepancy. The other is that there's some underlying facet that we weren't measuring yet that is resulting in these things being different. So an example of that latter one would be that if the survey data was representing a larger concept than the log data was. You're asking maybe engineers, like, how do you feel about your developer velocity? And there's a lot of pieces that go into a developer's velocity. There's a lot. And whereas maybe you're only measuring one small subpart of that. So you might see those diverging. And it's only because one of them is actually measuring a bigger concept. The case where we've seen, like, as an example, logs data being different or incorrect, even we had a case actually with an experience sampling study where we were asking our engineers after every build to please take a survey. And we were doing this to try to correlate build speeds with satisfaction and velocity. And we got some weird survey responses back a few times where engineers said, what are you talking about? I didn't do a build. And we're like, well, that's weird because the logs data says you did a build. 
Well, it turned out that the logs data was actually not just including builds that engineers kicked off themselves. It was also including a bunch of robotic builds that were happening in the background that the developer wasn't even paying attention to. And those are useful for other purposes for the developer tools, but the engineer didn't care about it. So that didn't actually factor into their satisfaction. And when you removed those builds, it actually gave you a very different picture about the build latency that developers were experiencing at Google than when you've factored them in. I think there's also interesting aspects where just because there are humans in the loop here, you can't assume like a one-to-one relationship with some objective metric. So build time is a good example. And if you look at psychology broadly, the entire field of psychophysics is partially predicated on the idea that like the thing you can measure in the world isn't the same as the subjective experience of that thing. So like you can turn a light to be twice as bright, the subject's impression of that light won't be twice as much brightness necessarily. Like there's these weird compression and expansion effects that emerge in their mathematical functions that describe them. So those sort of like non-linearities and like qualitative shifts we see in software engineering too. So like if I reduce build latency, right? If I make builds shorter and shorter and shorter, you might be like, just everything's a gain, right? And I get a linear gain as I reduce build latency, but that's not true. In fact, like once a build is longer than like X minutes, the developer has shifted to another task. So like beyond like 10-ish minutes or whatever, I can't remember what the number is here, sorry. But beyond like 10 minutes or whatever, the developer is not sitting there staring at the build. They've gone off to do something else or they're taking a break or they're like, they've task switched, right? So now like if you shorten your build from like 30 minutes to 20 minutes, the gain that you're going to affect in terms of like straight up throughput or productivity has very little to do with that 10 minutes and a lot to do with like what else did they shift to and when will they return? And how long will it take them to do the task resumption that's required to really, what was I doing anyway, right? So those things are features of humans, not features of builds, but of course they are critical to understanding the way that humans react to build latency changes. So that's, I mean, that's one example, but I think we see that in other cases too. You talked earlier about how you don't, we all agree, you can't reduce productivity down to a single number. There's all this data you're collecting. How do you go about figuring out which numbers actually matter? And I'm talking more in the like broader context for you know the folks you work with across the organization. What are the numbers that you sort of steer people toward paying attention to? Like, I'm sure, of course, it depends on context, but what's kind of the, the way you approach that? And maybe you can't share specific details, but you know, like, where have you sort of arrived? You said the right word there, which is it does depend on context. That's usually the first thing we ask people. Like, what is your goal? And the goal for different people is going to be very different. The, the goal for our VPs is usually they're just trying to get a very broad sense of how are things going right now? And is there a fire that I need to go look at? And they don't need all the nitty gritty details about what the current level of build latency is and build latency in this tool versus that tool. That's way too low level for them. They just want to know the broad strokes are things going as smoothly as they were before. And so for them, we provide them with very high level metrics. But as we drill down, there are teams that are going to, you know, the teams that are responsible for those tools, they do need more specific metrics for those tools. So we always encourage people to, we kind of follow a goal signals metrics approach. We ask them to first, like, write down your goals. What is your goal for speed? What is your goal goal for ease? What's your goal for quality? Write those down first and then ask your question of what are the signals that would let you know that you've achieved your goal? Regardless of whether they're measurable, signals are not metrics. What would be true of the world if if you've achieved your goal? And at that point, try to figure out what are the right metrics. And some of the signals may not even have metrics. That's useful to know sometimes that like, yeah, we can't measure this thing. Or maybe we 
can't measure it now, but we can create a new metric. We can, and then you can start talking about like, well, what's the right metric? Do we build, do we do a survey for this? Do we do logs? But we try to encourage people to really think from first principles of what are they going to need for their goals, as opposed to just giving a blanket set of metrics for the whole company. We do have like sort of like an assortment of metrics that we hold up as like a good starting point. And they map to this sort of speedies quality sort of set of facets. And I think our philosophy there has been to lean into the metrics that we have a lot of confidence in. So like we know what we're getting from the data side. We've done that validation work to understand that it reflects what developers are experiencing and that we're not overlooking like these non-linearities or there's like these weirdnesses in, in how people experience the, the uh, state of the world. We do ask the question a lot, like, what is it that you're trying to do and which metrics make sense? I think we just also lean into the sort of notion that you need a, a variety of metrics, both across speedies and quality and across like objective, subjective, volume, rate to really understand what's happening. And I think what we end up doing with stakeholders a lot is sort of pushing them like, what would you expect to see? What movements and metrics would you expect to see as a result of, of that state of the world? And then we often challenge them with like a, what if that's not true? Like, what if you see no difference on that metric? What might that mean? In fact, one of the ways we prioritize projects is like, if you don't have a good idea what you would do if the negative case were the outcome, like, we're not sure how we're actually helping you. Because we, we don't want to just be in the business of like confirming what people already think they know. So we, we push them on like, what if the null hypothesis comes out? Like, there is no difference. Or what if the negative hypothesis comes out? So a wide variety of metrics across that speedies and quality framework, ideally across subjective and objectively sourced metrics with a sort of like just nice coverage of the whole experience. And then a lot of thinking about how do these metrics reflect the world that you're trying to measure and understand. I want to put out there too, like it's okay to sometimes just not measure productivity. Like this is why we ask what are you can do with the negative hypothesis, because we've had teams that wanted to measure productivity. And when you ask them that question, it's like, oh, well, we're going to do it anyway, because it's a huge performance improvement. It reduces our machine resources. It's like, great. Do it anyway. <laughs> Go do it then. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you're telling me it's going to be a like slight to positive improvement for developers. And you're going to do it anyway, because it's definitely an improvement to machine resources. Why are we having this discussion? Just go do it. And that's okay. It is. We also have this conversation. Sometimes a, a team leader will come to us and say, like, I want to measure. We're really trying to like buy down the technical debt in our code base. Like, can we run your technical debt survey to understand whether we've done that. And I'm like, how big is your team? And they're like, it's 12 engineers. It's like, why don't you guys just have a meeting and you can talk about where you still see hindrances? I mean, your engineers are experts at this. Like they've actually waited around in your technical debt and your code base. They don't need to take a survey to understand that. A survey is great if we're trying to understand like broad strokes. Is it migrations? Is it like, what is the, the sort of like flavor of the technical debt that most plagues large bodies of developers? But on your team, like you don't need to survey your team necessarily. And you don't need to even like use logs based metrics to understand them. Like having a, a focused conversation with like a meaningful framework of what are we trying to do? What does that mean? How do we implement it? That is a uh, better spent time than like trying to measure imperfectly in some cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this this anti-pattern of like, oh, I, I need a metric for my team of four to understand something that you can just talk to people about goes back to this mixed methods concept, like just talking to people is a, is a good method to start with. And two things you guys brought up that I really appreciated. One was in your goal signals metrics framework, the focus on, on signals, right? Like what is the thing that would be observably different in the world or in the environment if the thing you were trying to measure were altered, right? The second piece I really appreciated was 
you challenging teams and asking them, hey, like what action or decision is this measurement actually going to inform? Because if it's not going to inform anything, then there's questionable data or value in the effort that it's going to take to to get that data. So so I love how you you know start with the problem and the context and kind of move into the measurement piece. You spoke earlier about the quarterly survey at Google. Would love to ask you a little bit more about that. I mean, tell listeners just a little bit about the high level kind of process around that. I mean, who designs that? Who runs it? Who does it go out to? What kind of participation do you see? Yeah. So we've been running the survey, the engineering satisfaction survey for five and a half years now. First Q1 2018 was the first one after we piloted it. It hits about one third of Google engineers every quarter. So we try to stagger our sampling a bit so that we're not asking people every quarter, how do you feel about your productivity? But we get a quarterly signal. And you know we have enough developers at Google that this is a practical solution, right? We have a lot of engineers at Google. <laughs> so we can meaningfully sample a third of them at a time and get a good signal. And as far as like who designs it, it's sort of an evolving product. So initially, a couple of UXRs with lots of uh, collaboration with our engineers decided on what topics we wanted to address and crafted the survey and piloted it with engineers and, and then launched it and kind of iterated over time as it sort of gained some visibility. We've had a lot of engagement from stakeholder teams. So like NGVPs across the company who are interested in the productivity of their organizations are like, hey, it'd be great if the survey also included questions like this or, or the tools that my folks use or the processes that I'm most concerned about. So we've had this sort of like accretion of, of uh, material from outside. At some point, we actually hit that a breaking point where we had accreted a lot of material and we needed to start streamlining. So in the last maybe three years, we've been more in a mode of streamlining and trying to make the survey a little sharper. And we're, we're always looking to evolve it. But yeah, every quarter, uh, there's a dedicated UX researcher who executes the survey. There's a dedicated engineer who uh, supports the, the survey execution as well. And then we have sort of like a team effort to do things like work on refinements to the survey, triage requests for changes. Everybody gets an analysis because there's just so much data that comes out of it. We ask a lot of questions. It's a pretty hefty survey. We've tried to find it. We also have a data analysis pipeline that we've built up to automate a lot of this so that we don't have to just be like playing in a spreadsheet the entire time. It We pull in all the data from our survey tool, do all of the basic slicing and aggregations, and we can turn that around the data in a couple of hours. Yeah, we've built a lot of infrastructure around our survey. Like, as you may know, like executing a survey consistently longitudinally is a challenging thing in of itself. And so having specific people assigned to that task is obviously like beneficial. The engineering support for like building infrastructure to automate key steps and to manage the data has been huge. And really just like a sustained investment in the program has been a big deal. I have said to numerous people in the last couple of years that one of my biggest takeaways from that program has been how undervalued consistency is. <laughs> like default, no, we're not changing our survey. We're going to stick with what we know has worked and that we have longitudinal tracking for. There's actually immense value in having that kind of inertia for an instrument, a measurement instrument. And I think, um, yeah, we're, we're flexible and we do evolve and adapt it. But by default saying like, no, no, what we have is working. And we've already measured it for X quarters. Let's see how that number changes. And we can talk about changes in the future if, if that's necessary. Is Part of your analysis, like how do you deal with kind of the distribution of the information back to, I mean, does it go all the way back to engineers? Is it everyone? Is it just leadership? Is it presented or is it, do they just get all the data themselves? Like, like how's the data used and, and like kind of what's the, the organizational communication or 
follow up on it to sustain this program? We have a pretty big emphasis within the team about being transparent about how we utilize this data. So first of all, no data ever leaves our team unaggregated. The responses are all private. So once we aggregate the data, it goes out onto dashboards. We do give some early access for teams that have signed up because they actually are needing the data very quickly to score their own quarterly goals. But the rest of the data, though, goes out to VPs and to the individual contributors at the same time. They can all see it. They can all see the aggregations. They can all play in our dashboards. They can all query the table, the aggregated tables and learn from it. Yeah, some of this is about the history of the survey program. Like early on, not necessarily everybody was bought into the idea of a developer satisfaction survey. So like, I think at that time we could have shared it very, very widely and everybody would have been crickets. Um, but but we, we focused on getting key people to buy into it. And, and we did just start a practice of sharing broadly because we could. At this point, as Sierra said, we still share a report every quarter with anybody who wants to see it. And the dashboards are available to anybody who wants to play with them. And I think we have seen not only does that foster like a lot of goodwill, that transparency, but it means that there's a lot of DIY work that can go into like executing on that data. So like we've had folks in specific product areas or specific teams who use the aggregated tables that we make available to like build their own dashboard that pulls in data from other sources that are meaningful for them or that corroborates like problems they know that they're trying to tackle. So we're a, a largest team, I guess, for what we do. We're like 18 or 20 people, but we're not that big. So we can't do bespoke kind of analyses for every eng team that's out there that, that wants to do them, but they can do them for themselves when we provide them access to the data, as well as all like the, the information about how the data were collected and what questions we asked precisely and, and really are open about those things, which we are. It's been interesting too how much people have really gotten into this. I'm always surprised to find like new slide decks, different places in the company where people cite our survey data that we didn't talk with them. We didn't even know about it, but because the survey is so widely used, they're continuing to go back to it to either understand their team or their product that they're building for other developers and say, hey, we need to invest more here or we need to shift our focus on this particular area. And they come back to the survey for it. The one other thing that I think maybe we haven't mentioned is that, uh, so the survey has a lot of structured questions in it, you know, like how satisfied are you with X and there's a, a Likert scale, but it also has a fair number of open-ended questions. And so we'll ask like, how satisfied are you with the following engineering tools? And then if they say like less than satisfied with some of them, there's a follow-up question that's like, hey, you said that you didn't like some tools, tell us more. And then our very engaged and thoughtful engineers will write like long structured paragraphs about their grievances. And that's great. That's so useful, right? Because then the teams who have had their tools sort of like put in that negative light. Yeah, that's not super fun, but like they've got this source of direct qualitative information about like what is causing so many problems. And I think the the open-ended text questions have been a, a real goldmine for some of the product teams that either don't want to or can't run their own user research because it's an internal developer tool and they don't have a UXR or whatever. But we provide uh, fairly like nicely organized and uh, sanitized open text for them to mine and to understand so they can sort of like orient their roadmaps around it. It's really interesting to hear how you mentioned like the buy-in for the survey has grown and it's like usage of the data has, has grown organically. And, you know, I think Part of probably the challenge at the beginning, and we've talked about this, you know, in other conversations, but is that leaders 
especially engineering leaders, I think, tend to, by default, be a little bit skeptical of survey-based measures. So love to ask you about your experience with that, whatever you can share, but then also just like advice for others out there who may be trying to get a developer survey program off the ground and are dealing with that exact problem. Like, How do you get buy-in for a survey program? How do you get trust or, or educate people on the validity of survey-based data and measurements? I think early on, uh, we had a lot of conversations about the, the points I made before, which is there are things that are very difficult or, or maybe even impossible to measure other ways. Don't you want to hear about them? There's not like a, an algorithm here. Like there's no shared path to buy-in. I think the consistency point I mentioned before, where sort of executing consistently, longitudinally, that helps a lot. You know, a one-off survey, you're not going to get buy-in right away, probably. And a lot of what people are interested in is, is changes. So like we launched a feature in Q1. Did that change this metric? It's amazing how fast people buy into survey data when they see an outcome that they were hoping for. <laughs> you know, of course, that doesn't always happen. And, and survey data can be noisy, right? Even with large samples, we see fairly broad confidence intervals on some of our questions. So that can be a, a difficulty. I think stakeholder engagement and getting subject matter experts input. So you're asking the right questions, using the right words, providing the right options. That's a key thing. You can lose credibility with engineers very quickly if you ask a question that's that's like a little off target or doesn't doesn't reveal knowledge of the underlying domain. This thing about specific VPs that we convinced, like who actively were not sure about survey data and then became like some of our biggest fans and what happened there. And a lot of it was working with them to help them understand how to utilize it. We encourage them to go to the survey data first, because if you just go look at logs data, logs data doesn't really tell you whether it's good or bad. We mentioned that we've got this active coding time metric. You know, We know the active coding time it takes to make a change at Google, to make each change list. But that number is kind of useless by itself. Like you don't know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Do we have a problem? Who knows? So we encourage our executives to do is go to the survey first, see where your top problems are. And we highlight to them like, hey, it looks like the top five problems are the following things. Maybe one of those is something you you think, oh, I can make impact on this one. And it might not be the top one, right? The top problem might be something that you cannot independent yourself change. It might be something that's very expensive to change. But maybe problem number two, three, four is cheap to change. And it is in your control. Great. Now that you know that's an issue, now go look at the logs data and now try to see, okay, how big of an issue is this at scale? What's the number we want to kind of set our goal to? And we started convincing a few VPs to approach it like that. And they really liked it. It works for them well. And they've now gone through this a few times saying like, yeah, I just find my next big problem, focus on that, see it improve in the logs. And then later in the survey as it starts to actually fix things for the developer, now let's go take the next big problem. I think Sierra is also implicitly like mentioning a thing that's important, which is yeah, survey data are a lot more convincing when they are corroborated by other data sources. So when we go and we say like, hey, we've measured self-reported productivity, and also we have like this logs-based measure that was not survey-based that says similar things are happening, right? That immediately gains confidence for both metrics. So when we see that agreement between behavioral research methods or survey-based research methods and objective sort of quantifiable survey met or research methods, that also bolsters the credibility of, I think, the whole program. And 
that doesn't mean that has to be the way you gain credibility for survey research, but I think it sure does help with engineering leaders, especially. It is a fast track to like credibility, I think. When you say, hey, we have this measure of, let's say, engineering velocity, it's survey-based, and they're like, hmm. But then you say, hey, look, it actually like, it's predicted by these three like throughput and velocity measures that we extract from logs. They're like, oh, okay, like maybe I want to pay attention. Colin, I want to ask you one more follow-up question since you're the, the psychologist here in the room. As you've interfaced with leaders, not just at Google, but all across the industry, like, is there one thing you feel like is just fundamentally misunderstood about surveys as a measurement instrument? If so, like, what would that thing be? <laughs> My glib answer is that people are under the misimpression that it's very easy to run a good survey, when in fact, like, the easiest thing you can do is run a terrible, terrible survey. There are people who've dedicated their careers to survey construction. I'm not even one of them. I just have, like, some training in that area. But I think people misunderstand how difficult it is to construct, execute, and analyze a survey effectively. So that's one thing that I think uh, is, a, is a misconception. The conversation we just had about convincing eng leaders about the validity of, of survey or, or any qualitative research, that problem does exist elsewhere. So I've done UX research for aerospace engineers, I've done it for radiation oncologists, and I've done it for software engineers. Those all three are disciplines where there's like a lot of deep technical expertise and a lot of lean into what's the hard data say. And I think the story is roughly the same, like emphasizing that you can learn things that are difficult or impossible to learn from objective data quickly with a survey, a well-constructed survey, that's useful. I think pointing out to them that they've hired excellent engineers or oncologists or whoever, excellent technicians, excellent experts, and that asking them for their expert opinion is really valuable. It actually, when it's, when it's really presented that way, can be pretty persuasive. I remember having a conversation with CR early on about like, why it's useful to ask engineers these things. And we go out as a company, we try to hire the best engineers that are out there, the smartest people that we can find. And then we're like, ah, don't ask them any questions. Like, that's really silly, right? Our engineers are really great integrators of information. They, they're observing all of these variables that impact their productivity. And when you ask them, how's your productivity? Like they're rolling that up in a way that's hard to understand and it can be a little bit messy because they're human beings, but also like, they're really heavily integrative and they're, they're considering a lot of factors simultaneously in a way that is tailored to their own productivity. And that there's value there, I think. And they're not even just, and they're passively doing this, but they're also actively doing this. Our engineers here are very much reflective practitioners. They are frequently thinking about their own productivity and how to improve it and how do they improve their team's productivity. So when we ask them, it's not exactly just like an idle thought. If they, if they put previous work into this and they have opinions that they would like us to know. One of the things I love about working in uh, UX research for like technical user bases is the interest in self-improvement, self-quantification and like incremental change. So if I were to tell like a consumer of a, of a digital product out there in the world, like you can do that task 2% faster. They might be like, I wasn't even aware I was doing that task or like that task isn't important to me or I don't care how fast I do it. If I tell a Google engineer, like, you can code 2% faster if you do X, they'll, they'll like, seriously consider doing it, and they want to know more about how we know that, right? So the engagement and the, the interest in, in optimization is, is just like a whole different story in a technical population. Well, thanks for these tips and these thoughts, sharing the approaches and experiences you guys have had. I think this will be really helpful for both leaders who are on either end of that discussion, whether they're trying to get buy-in for survey-based methods at their organization, or if they're on the other side of the table and skeptical about these methodologies. I hope that some of the things shared here can be helpful. 
I want to move into talking about a very recent paper you co-published called A Human-Centered Approach to Developer Productivity. Really loved this paper. It referenced stuff that I hadn't even come across before, like even that Peter Drucker quote about knowledge worker productivity. Loved that. And I went and read that paper. But just for listeners, this paper really talks about the challenge of measuring developer productivity, how we commonly get it wrong, and kind of points toward directionally, you know, how we should consider thinking about measuring productivity. By the way, all listeners should go check out this paper. I'm sharing this paper with people all the time. But I want to ask you both, where did this come from? Like, why did you feel this paper was needed? Yeah, I mean, I think a combination of experiences. One of the things that happens, of course, is that somebody wants to measure productivity and they look at like what's in front of them and they they sort of they select somewhat out of convenience, right? What am I already measuring? Let's count that thing. That leads them to these places what CR was mentioning before, like they're just over-indexing on one narrow metric potentially. And they're not even thinking about that metric in relation to their goals. So I think a little bit of it was trying to springboard into the, hey, productivity is a complex thing. You need to sort of think about it holistically and in a, a multifaceted way. I think the other thing is that there's a little bit and this, the Drucker reference and also the reference to Taylorism in that paper, there's a little bit of a desire to like take a systematic and scientific approach to measuring productivity, which I'm totally for. Like That's what we do. But that doesn't mean a reductionist approach. And it doesn't mean that you can rely on productivity analysis methods, scientific management that was invented in like 1900 to understand what software engineers do. So I think it, it's not that anybody actually like believes that shoveling coal and software engineering are like fundamentally the same on that front. And I think we, we sort of like joked a little bit about people not believing that software developers are human beings. Like that's not like practically an issue, of course. But I think when we, when we try to address a hard problem, one of the things we do is simplify. One of the things we do is put constraints on ourselves. And that can lead to this place of like oversimplifying, especially knowledge worker productivity. It was sort of a set of conversations that Sierra and I had over a long period of time. And I think at some point we wrote down engineering productivity for humans rather than like for robots or whatever, um, it sat idle for a long time. And we sort of like poked at it and like sent it to a colleague of ours. And he sort of poked at it. And at some point we had this opportunity to write for IEEE software. And that seemed like a, a good framing, a good starting point for like the work that we do. It's, it's bringing that human element, that behavioral science, as well as like mixed methods approach into understanding this, this complex thing that is productivity. And I don't know, I guess that's my memory of it. Yeah, I think, Colin, you're right. I've like my recollection here is that it was like the series of conversations that you and I would have of like coming back together in one of our meetings and going, oh, look, someone forgot developers are human again. And it was sometimes from things in our own job, but it was also like I remember there's a series of like three papers I was reading when I was looking at published research where I got frustrated because Somebody would do some research, for example, to understand hindrances and developer productivity, and then they'd get a bunch of hindrances from developers and they'd toss half of them away as, well, those are fluffy human problems, basically. <laughs> Let's set them aside. We're not going to talk about that. And I'm going, well, no, but these things are tied together. You can't separate out hindrances to productivity in human fluffy problems that are HR things versus tool, hard tool problems. They're connected. I guess an example of this something I actually saw a paper reference. They, they talked about code review. And I remember they were talking about how sometimes you might send your code review to somebody who is on vacation. And they kind of toss that as, you know, human problem. I'm like, well, no, 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 that is also a tool problem. 
And actually at Google, we even have a way of fixing this. And it was very nice and simple. Our code review tool gives you a warning if your reviewer is on vacation. And it lets you know that like, maybe you should assign this to someone else. And if you ask it to auto-assign, it won't pick someone who's on vacation. That's a tool fixing the human problem. And these things are tied together. Humans react to their tools. You change the tools, it changes how the human works with it. They're all the same. And so I disagree about as another example, actually, if you look at our paper on anonymous code review, that's another one where, yes, bias is a human problem, but we can address it with tools and then it's not a problem anymore. Less of a problem, maybe. Less of a problem. Less of a problem. <laughs> less of a problem. Yeah, less of a problem. But these things are play together. And so we can't just pretend that we can focus only on tools. We have to know that developers are humans and they're going to react to them. I think you can also think of this as like, the tools, the infrastructure, the engineering processes we put in place, that's like the structure that humans are working in. But humans aren't only a consequence of their structure. Their behavior is a consequence of what they bring to the table from outside as well as that structure. But we can look for structural solutions to some of the human problems that come in. And Sarah's just giving you a couple examples. I think the other two important points are that the sort of human problems often swamp the technical problems. So like if you're super stressed because you have a childcare issue or because you have somebody sick in your family or whatever else is going on. You have a medical problem. Like those are human problems. And yeah, we can't solve those directly, but they sure do make a huge difference in things like productivity. So it's not even that we can necessarily solve all the human problems, but if you fail to account for them, you're missing like a big piece of the puzzle. And then finally, I think the other thing is that sometimes the narrowing of the focus to like what we can count or like single metrics, it's easier to lose empathy for the people that we're talking about. So Sierra and I spend a lot of time talking about privacy for our participants and privacy for our engineers. She mentioned we only share aggregated data. That's because we, we want to evaluate engineering tools, infrastructure, processes, and practices. We're not here to evaluate engineers. And I think when you start to do things like count the lines of code somebody's produced, a leaderboard is the next logical conclusion, right? But there's not actually a lot of utility there from a how do I change the structure of, a, of an environment point of view. And it's not a good way to like systematically improve engineering productivity. So, but it's easy to like forget that when you can just stack people up, right? Nobody at Google does that and, and when we actively discourage it, but it's a thing that would be easy to slip into if you forget that like those are human beings on the other side of this number. Studying the world rather than like just the data is like a really critical thing that I think all researchers need to keep in mind when they're doing this kind of stuff is it's not just numbers that we're studying. It's, it's people, it's an organization, it's the world that we're studying. I mean, this problem of you know, leaders, organizations kind of picking a convenient metric like commits, lines of code, pull requests, something like that. I mean, this is happening all over the place. You're, of course, not the only you know, people talking about this and warning people about this. A lot of my research focuses on that. A lot of people we know there writing about this and talking about this. And this is a topic that comes up a lot on the show. Since you wrote a paper about this, I just want to ask you, I mean, like explain to listeners the problem with using the reductionist metrics like number of commits or pull requests to measure productivity or drive productivity? I don't think there's one problem with it. I can think of a couple. I mean, one of them is just like, there's a human being on the other side of it, like set the empathy part aside. That human being is not just going to sit around and like be at the whim of the counting. Like Goodhart's laws about, you know, metrics, once you measure it, people want to game it basically. I can't, what's the right phrasing of the law? Once you measure it, it fails to be a good measure or something. Yeah. You get the point. The idea is that like, if I just count one thing and there are human beings on the other end of it who are incentivized to look good on that single dimension, it ends up being essentially like, I want to say sort of deformed by that process, right? So if you tell engineers like, 
more lines of code equals more productivity, you're incentivized to write more lines of code, they're going to add lines of code to their changes, right? And not because they're malicious, just because like that's the incentive structure you've put in place. You've also now disincentivized other types of work. So I don't think anyone would argue against like, we want tech leads at Google, especially to be thinking about the overarching design and software architecture. Well, that's not writing lines of code. So if we would like to keep having good designs and good software architecture and high quality code, we probably don't want to be measuring them based upon their LOC. Yeah. I think you also fall into this trap of like undesirable trade-offs. So like if throughput of lines of code is what you want to optimize for, are you not going to measure the quality of those lines at all? Like, are you not going to measure their reliability, their robustness, how many bugs there are? Like, so if you're going to try to simplify to one or two convenient measures, are you adequately capturing the trade-offs that really exist between, for example, like the velocity of your, of your engineering and the quality of what comes out the other side? And then expanding that again back to the human beings, if you're in an environment where you're like, write code fast and it better be good, like what is your attrition going to look like long-term? Like, are people just going to get burnt and be like, I'm going to go find a job where like, it's just less crazy. We don't tend to touch attrition on our team too much because there's, there's a lot of sensitivity around it. But like those things happen because there are human beings on the other side of these strategies. So the measurement strategy, if, especially if it's reductionist and let's say just myopic, it's more sub- subject to the gaming that happens from the other side. It misses these critical trade-offs that you really do care about as an engineering leader. And it can become insensitive to like the reality that there's a human on the other side who has to work on the other end of your, of your measurement strategy. So this understanding, this, these ideas you're sharing, I'm always quoting you guys, as you, as you both know, I love your papers. And I was sharing this paper with a group of folks a few weeks ago. And one of them was like, oh my gosh, like the fact that this needs to be said by researchers at Google is just like shows the sad state of our industry right now. So I mean, kind of want to ask you, I mean, like, why is this so difficult for us as an industry to just like kind of come around to, to understanding this and putting this practice to bed? Because we're also humans and we would like an easy answer. <laughs> and unfortunately, like that's what, what Colin and I are saying is this is all nuanced and hard to do and it takes significant effort. And there's not an easy, simple, just look at that one graphic and know everything is okay. And I don't like that either. I would love it if it was simple and easy, but the world is a complex place. Yeah. I only suspect that this is a pervasive problem. Like I haven't, I haven't been out at like all the big tech companies to observe this going on in their, in their engineering organizations. So I think we see shades of it occasionally. And I think when we look at the literature and outside sort of writing, you see this, a little bit of this reductionist view kind of creeping in. So um, why is it hard to come to terms with? Sierra's right, like we're human beings too. This is a hard problem. It's not unique to engineering productivity either. Like measuring business performance has a lot of the same issues. I think we're more comfortable with sort of evaluating businesses on a a narrower set of metrics. And there's like a lot of people who are heavily invested in in quantifying, you know, a business's performance in various ways, but it's not like those are perfect either. Revenue per headcount is probably not the right metric for efficiency for every business, but we use it a lot, we globally. So I think I think a lot of these problems are hard and human beings do want simple answers. We want to consider like two, maybe three things instead of 12. So we reduce the, the field that we put constraints on it. On that note, uh, Colin, Sierra, both of you, when we were talking earlier, kind of shared examples from other knowledge worker professions or other industries that kind of struggled or maybe overcome to some extent some of these similar challenges. So share with listeners a little bit about what we can learn or the mistakes we can learn from even from some of these other fields. 
I think we talked earlier about about medicine a little bit. So I spent uh, a few years working in UX research for a, a medical company, and that field definitely has a great interest in in things like productivity or efficiency or efficacy. There's also a lot of money involved in healthcare, right? And people have to make like hard decisions. So I think the example I was giving was about investing in a, a piece of equipment like a linear accelerator, for example, for radiation treatment. That's a multi-million dollar investment, and a hospital administrator has to make that decision to make that investment for their their clinic or their system or whatever. And they have to think about like, how is that as a capital expenditure? Like, am I getting my money's worth when I invest $10 million in this thing? And so you're, <laughs> you're inclined to ask questions like, well, how many patients per day can I treat on it? And medicine is good. They don't over-index on those things. I think they look at them, but they also look at quality of life. They look at efficacy of treatment. They talk to their clinicians about the quality of the care, the patient experience, those things. So I think they have tried to really do a good job with capturing this holistic experience and looking across many metrics of many flavors to understand what's happening. It's not a solved problem. I think anybody who's in medicine would say like, there's still a lot of challenge there, but I think they have been really thoughtful about it because, you know, to their credit, like a lot of the people who go into that field, they want the best holistic outcomes, especially the best holistic clinical outcomes. And they're, they're working within those constraints. So I think the one thing to take away from that is that it's hard and that we need a like a very well-rounded approach that, that looks at a lot of different dimensions. Yeah. I was at a dog stool seminar recently where we were talking about standards of evidence and medicine was one of the ones that came up. The other two that came up were psychology and education, where these fields are, and as Colin said, you know, they're not perfect, but they're farther along than we are as a field in trying to say, what do we really know about what's effective? And they have created standards of evidence for their research. And then they try to publish out the research and standards and evidence in a way that people can look it up. So like one of the examples we were exploring in that seminar was looking at the What's Works Clearinghouse, which is a government-run website for education. And the idea is that like teachers or educational researchers can go and look up and say like, what does work for teaching mathematics to this age range that is behind in mathematics at this level or that has dysgraphia or whatever, they can find out like what's the best practice right now. We don't have that in software engineering yet. We don't even have standards of evidence yet. And then after that, we need to actually create a way of saying, okay, I want to make it so that every software engineer can go to a single website and say, yeah, what do I need to consider to improve my productivity in this particular field, in this particular space? But we're pretty far behind them. We've got a lot of catch up. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. And yeah, I mean, something I just think about is just like how young this field is, right? So I mean, you know, yeah, we're behind, but this isn't, uh, you know, people have been building homes and operating, or that sounds grim, <laughs> you know, medical practice. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, around a lot longer than, than software development. I want to, in this sort of last part of the conversation, move into talking about this just recent paper you guys published, an, another amazing paper around defining, measuring, and managing technical debt. And I think this will be a great way to kind of tie together all the themes we've been talking about today. First off, you defined technical debt, or at least broke it down into into its elements, which I think is a remarkable achievement. So I, I want to recommend that all listeners go check that paper out. One thing you start off in the paper talking about is, and 
this point in the conversation, right? listeners aren't going to be surprised by this, but is that you've been measuring tech debt with surveys for a while. Some people that I've shared that with have been like, you know, that's been uh, <laughs> like a very surprising, a new concept to them. Can you just explain? I mean, we've talked about survey you know, methodology in general, but how do you think about an approach measuring tech debt with surveys? We started measuring technical debt with surveys in 2018. It was like shortly after we started running our quarterly survey. One thing that I can't explain why, but one thing that our team has collectively been good at is sort of like sniffing out the next thing that leadership is going to be interested in. So like a good nose for the next next question of interest. Tech debt was definitely like, there's a strong whiff of tech debt in the air. So we started just trying to break down technical debt as engineers defined. And this is this is a departure from, I think, some people's approach, which is just like, say, here are the kinds of technical debt that I know exist based on like a formal understanding of software engineering. That's a reasonable approach, but the engineers keep saying technical debt is a problem. I don't even know what they mean. Like, is it everything? Is it a specific thing? Like, what are they even complaining about What that I can fix, right? And it was from a good place, a desire to help, a desire to take action. So I think our first foray into measuring technical debt was just to try to ferret out when engineers say they're hindered by technical debt, what is it that's actually hindering them? And it took us like maybe three quarters of like incremental improvement in our survey and some factor analysis and like unpacking open-ended text. But we arrived at a set of, I think it's 10, is it 10 kinds of technical debt that we thought were like emerging as consistent themes that engineers were, were referencing, but also somewhat independent of each other. So we really let the data tell us like, what, what do engineers mean when they complain about technical debt? And now we still ask that question, like, you said you were hindered by technical debt, like which flavors were you hindered by? That lets us understand like where the big challenges are. And it also lets like product areas or teams know, hey, my engineers are, are saying they're bothered by technical debt, like what flavor is it? What can I do about it? If it's a migration or if it's like dead code or if it's like whatever, I, I know then what action to take. So you may know that there, there are not a lot of really great effective ways to measure technical debt. and we, I think, sort of let the data guide us in a survey form to understand what engineers were talking about. And from there, we had a, a jumping off point to, to do more analysis work. Sierra was involved in trying to use that as a basis for then going to objective metrics from the code base and saying, like, can we see these things from that angle? Now that we have a bunch of engineers telling us what kinds and where to look, can we find it in the code base? So Sierra, certainly there's probably like a research question around, okay, like as we develop this greater understanding of what technical debt is, and we're getting signal on it through the surveys, how do we get the more objective measures? But beyond the, the sort of research question, what else prompted the investigation? I, I believe there were also just some limitations of the survey signals you were getting, and maybe, again, some of the, the desire just by leaders to have more leading indicators. Yeah, and it wasn't even just leaders, actually. I will note it was ICs across the company, too. Everyone was complaining about technical debt, but first defining what that was. And then there was a sense of, I had a lot of people phrase this to me as like, I want to see a heat map of our code base and just tell me where the hot spots are. Where do I need to pay attention to? And, you know, leaders wanted to see the big, wide, wider code base. But even within a team, people were saying, can you show me where the hotspot is in mine? Or can you show me that I have a feeling that my team is a hotspot compared to the rest of the company? And I'd like to back that up so I can buy my team some time and tell our leadership, hey, we need to take a quarter to turn down our technical debt. But they didn't feel like they had the data to support that. So that was kind of where that research started from was like, let's see if we can have logs-based metric that agrees with the survey data that says this is roughly where tech debt is at in the code base. 
unfortunately, that did not work as we would have hoped. And I don't think it's impossible in the future, but I think the metrics that exist right now within Google and outside of Google just aren't really representing technical debt. Things like the number of to-dos does not accurately represent how people think about technical debt. Number of lint errors, I know, is another one I've heard people talk about. It's like, oh, if you've got a lot of lint errors, it's tech debt. Well, not really. That doesn't correspond with engineers' perceptions either. So we did look at a wide variety of measures, and we didn't find anything useful. I said, I don't think that means that it's impossible that there are measures out there. I think we need to keep exploring. I think that's a place where there needs to be more research. And when you say you, know, you didn't really find something that, that turned out to be a useful signal, can you just share for listeners, I mean, what kind of statistical analysis, like what was the methodology to, to actually determine that? We were looking for correlations between the code that an engineer touched and how that metric looked for that code versus what that same engineer was responding on the survey. And I don't remember exactly which statistical method we were using, though, it was a while back. One of the challenges of doing this part of the project was, of course, we ask engineers about their technical debt on a quarterly cadence, right? So we're asking an engineer, hey, how hindered were you by technical debt in Q1? That's a long time. And then we have to go back and say, like, well, which parts of the code base did they touch in those three months? And there's a lot of like uncertainty involved there in trying to discern, like, well, where exactly might they have encountered it? And of course, like all the complexities we associate with with human research, like, do they remember three months ago versus one month ago? And should there be a linear relationship between how much technical debt they encountered and how often they report it? Like, you have to make assumptions there, and some of them are probably wrong, and there's a lot of noise in that signal. So when you analyzed the, the objective measures and, and found that none of them really correlated, I mean, for both of you, was that outcome a surprise? That outcome to me was not a huge surprise. There was a few metrics that I was hoping might actually correlate, but I was also not terribly surprised when nothing did. I think I was hopeful that we'd find something. This resolution issue of like quarterly cadence of survey reporting versus trying to find like fine-grained stuff in the code, that is a pretty big obstacle. I think at some point we talked about doing something more experience sampling focused where like when somebody submitted a change, we'd like ping them right away and say like, hey, you just submitted a change. Was there like a big challenge with technical debt or unnecessary complexity in the code that you were working with? So we talked about trying to like hone in on specific change lists and self-reported technical debt challenges without change lists. I don't think we've ever, we've not done that at scale yet. No, we haven't had time to go back and pick that up again, but something that I think someone out there could definitely work on. Yeah. I think the bigger surprise, to be honest, for me on the entire tech debt stuff was just the fact that we could find 10 different types of tech debt. I would have not been surprised. I think a lot of people wouldn't have if we had run those surveys and every single engineer said, all of them, I'm hindered by all 10 of these things. And it's not actually what happens. I think that was the biggest surprise is that engineers actually had strong opinions that, no, I'm only hindered by two of these. And they could point to you to exactly those two. Yeah, I think the other thing that was eventually surprising about the survey data is that like, once we had a pretty like solid set of flavors of technical debt, we still have an other option in there. So engineers can say like, none of these is right. I have another thing. I can't remember what the proportion of engineers that select the other option is, but it's it's like in the tenths of a percent. It's like really small. It's very small. So like we have these 10 flavors, not everybody picks all of them. And also we seem to be covering the space of what people are complaining about like pretty well, which was one of our you know stopping criteria for deciding we had a good question. So what you're telling me is you, you two should be Nobel Prize candidates because you've successfully defined technical debt, which which I feel like is as elusive as like productivity of itself. Um, you know, one of the things that 
I really loved about this paper was you know, towards in the latter half of the paper, you, you sort of speculate as to you, know, you discuss the fact that you weren't able to find objective measures that correlate. And you sort of suggest that you explicitly say, I'll, I'll read the line from the paper, you say, this points out that human cognition and reasoning play a big role in developer productivity, particularly because the conception of an ideal state of a system and using that imagined state as a benchmark against which the current state can be judged or measured. And that was such a profound couple paragraphs, couple sentences you had in your paper. I love it because, you know, it really resonates with me. This idea that so many things in software development that are intangible that we can't see in our logs can only really be understood and measured by using human judges, aka asking people questions and measuring against this imagined state. But I also feel like this is a pretty abstract concept. So I want to try to break it down a little bit, just discuss it here to help listeners understand and appreciate it more. So help me do that. Maybe Sirius, starting with you, like kind of explain what you're trying to convey here. What we're trying to convey is really just that the engineer is ultimately the judge. And one engineer might view one project as having technical debt and not another project, even if some underlying metric was exactly the same, simply because of the context it's in. It's more about like, did it make sense for this code to look like this? Does it actually impact us in reality? When I think about this a lot of times, I, I like to go back to Martin Fowler's technical debt quadrants, because those quadrants are entirely about human judgment too. Did we make a conscious decision to take on the tech debt? And then was that decision good? And that's, again, a value judgment that a human puts on this. The example we've read in the paper, I think, is about like migrating from like Python 2 to Python 3, right? So that's a really like simplistic but concrete case. If your code base is all Python 2 and there is no Python 3, there's no like needed migration. There's no like it could be better, but it's not. It's just the Python 2 code base, perfectly reasonable, no technical debt. Right. But as soon as Python 3 like exists in the world, all of a sudden, like our imagined state has changed. And all of a sudden, like we're not what we could be. Right. And that's a very concrete example, but we can imagine ideal states that don't have anything to do with like the release of like new languages or whatever. But I think that it's that disconnect between what could be and what is. That expert judgment is a really critical thing to technical debt. And Martin Fowler's quadrants are, are a great sort of like riff on this. But even Ward Cunningham's original conception of this. You know, he was using financial debt as a metaphor, and the metaphor is useful. Nobody would argue that like financial debt is like inherently good or bad. And his point was, it's a tool. Like this is a way you think about how you prioritize, how you scope projects, what you invest in rapidly versus like robustly. There's no like unequivocally good or bad for going into debt. It's really about like, do you have a plan to repay it? Is the investment going to pay back a return? Are you going to get more out of incurring this debt than you will lose by? having to pay the interest on it, right? That's like the crux of the metaphor that I think it's sometimes lost. Like technical debt is not just like that code is bad quality or even like that's just brittle or even that's just old. It's like that code was like incurred for efficacy or for convenience or for short-term gain. And we maybe didn't have a good long-term plan for management. And I think the technical debt management framework that we referenced that our colleagues at Google have put together in the paper, you know, that it's a lot about process. It's a lot about like, Track what technical debt you're incurring, be thoughtful about it, create a plan to track it and pay it down, budget the resources to do that, and just be intentional about this process. Nobody says have zero technical debt, like that's not a thing, but have technical debt that you have like a good grasp on and you have a plan to deal with. 
And this is why we don't just simply ask people like, you know, oh, did you encounter technical debt? The answer is always yes. The question is, did the technical debt you encountered hinder your productivity? That's where it's a problem that we actually need to solve. Yeah, I love that. And this idea of, yeah, I love the Python 2, Python 3 example, because it's, it's so concrete, like the existence of a of a better way, right, or a better imagined state completely changes our evaluation and judgment of the current state. And I imagine, I mean, this, we're talking about technical debt now, but this applies to a lot of the, uh, you know, survey based measurements, even around speed and ease that you capture. And I feel like this goes back to this idea that with an objective metric alone, it's often very hard to define what, as you said earlier, like what good is, right? And you rely on the the counterbalance, the, the judgment of humans to tell you. So I'm curious, like, have you actually put that to work in terms of like kind of using human judgment to give you a better understanding of what a good metric X or metric Y is? Our survey-based metrics, we mostly look at like the percentage of people who answer in a favorable way. And so we know what like headroom we have to like everybody is happy. So like good in those cases, always like 100% of engineers report being satisfied with their velocity. Like that's what good looks like. And we know how we're progressing towards that. What like realistically good looks like, more of like an empirical question. Like we observe where it is, we observe how it moves, we have an idea where we might get. You know, I think we have a few metrics where we have consistently high scores and we think those are probably like, good benchmarks for about as good as one might do on such questions. But that's a little bit uh, difficult sometimes. I think for other metrics, like we do a lot of this triangulation with self-report and we try to understand like where the differences in the metric make a difference to the person. Build speed or build latency was a good example, I think. But even like the rate at which you can like iterate a, a bit of code. So that's the thing we've been working on lately is how fast can you get feedback on coding edits and then like build again and, and iterate. What does good look like for that? It's really not clear. We can just sort of be descriptive about like what it looks like. What does the distribution of those durations look like? And we can get some interesting inklings like some things are so short that like nothing meaningful happened in that time. And some things are so long that like something's gone awry and you're measuring the wrong thing. But within a range, like we know that sometimes faster is better, but it's difficult to say like how fast can you get before you get too short or how long can you get before you get uselessly long? It's a very challenging problem. Colin, Sierra, it's been a fascinating discussion. So interesting for me to hear about you know, how you're approaching your research, methodology, how you're measuring developer productivity at Google, and being able to discuss all these recent papers you've put out. Super excited to continue following both of your work. Thanks for all the work and all the public information you're putting out. Really appreciated this conversation today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. It's nice talking with you about it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find detailed show notes and other content at our website, getdx.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider rating our show since this helps more listeners discover our podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode.